Are you ready? Go! Get to Australia, you're a celebrity. I don't care. No matter how hard you've ever pushed. How much fear you've ever faced. That's nothing. Because you're going to where you've never been before. To your breaking point. Well, you might know that show, SAS Australia. 18 celebrities battle it out to in one of the most grueling, physically grueling reality TV shows there are. Uh, the finale, if you've been watching or if you've been keeping in touch, was last week where Sam Burgess, the disgraced ex-NRL uh, player, he actually uh, came out on top and won. And of course, it sounds like a great story of an ultimate comeback for someone like Sam. But here's what happened. Leaked about a day before the finale, um, there was leaked information from one of the producers that, uh, that it was rigged from the beginning. You got that? That the producers had always intended for Sam Burgess to win, even from episode one. And in fact, the final five contestants were all given a script that they had to memorize for that last episode so that it looked, you know, that Sam would win. See, the outcome uh, for this show, for this season, uh, if this is true, was already determined. Uh, now, you might wonder why the other celebrities even bothered. Well, apparently they all got huge paychecks anyway. So that's why it was worth the effort, even though they didn't come out on top. I wonder if you think the book of Joshua is a bit like that. In, in the sense that the outcome was already determined, in a sense, because God already promised victory. And if you were with us last week, the first half of Joshua 10, right? That God had orchestrated such a decisive victory. There was an alliance of five kings about to sweep over the people of Gibeon. But God had already arranged and orchestrated a decisive victory. So much so that you remember at the end of the bit we read, God um, sent hail from heaven, which killed more people than Joshua and the armies of Israel did with the sword. And this kind of raises the question, right? Like the one we looked at a couple of weeks ago, that if God is sovereign and the outcome is already determined, well, what difference does it make what I do or what I don't do? It's a little bit like SAS Australia. If the outcome is determined, why, why even bother? Well, here's the thing, right? Joshua chapter 10 didn't end with the passage we looked at yesterday, verse 15. And today really is part two of that sermon. So if you didn't catch last week's, it might be a good idea to go back and listen to it. Now, why is part two important? Part two of Joshua 10 is important because it shows that God's promise and God assuring his people of victory, i.e. his sovereignty, rather than make his people passive and inactive, actually energizes them into action, right? That's the big point today. And here's the thing, right? If lockdown has done anything, which it's done heaps, doesn't it? But if it's done anything else, it's made us pretty inactive, hasn't it? It's really lowered our motivation. Our apathy has gone up. And especially when church life and community life, maybe devotional life, certainly relationships with non-Christians, evangelism, all of that has gone into hibernation. So here is a good time as any, isn't it, to be re-energized as we open up. So I hope you're ready. Let's pray and let's get into it. Father, we pray that as we come progressively out of lockdown, that this part of your word might really speak to us in a way that energizes us back into community, back into action, back into serving you, back into holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty. So first point, um, you remember verses 1 to 15, uh, at the end of what we looked at last week, that, that, that battle 
uh, against the five kings, that looked pretty done and dusted, right? Verse 15, we read that all Israel and Joshua, the army, returned to their base camp at a place called Gilgal. But then the bit we read today, we pick up in verse 16. We Did you notice? It's, it's like a flashback. It's a rewind. It's a little bit like, I don't know if you've been watching K-dramas, Korean dramas. At the end of the episode, you kind of get those uh, end of episode rewind flashback reveals, stuff that you didn't see earlier that are now revealed at the end. This is a bit like that, okay? Verse 16 is a flashback to the details of the battle or the end of the battle that weren't covered earlier. In fact, the rest of chapter 10, if you read on, is a series of flashbacks. You see, the last verse of chapter 10, verse 43, if you've got your Bibles open, you can see that Joshua goes back to Gilgal. But we've already read that in verse 15, right? Well, this isn't a second return to Gilgal. This is the same return to Gilgal. In other words, right, verses 16 to 43 retrace the same days of battle, but now it's filling out the details in a sort of rewind flashback. You might be asking why. Why does it do this? Well, here's the reason why. The first playthrough, verses 1 to 15, what we looked at last week, it emphasized very strongly it was about the divine. It was about God, the one who fought and chased and beat down and threw hailstones, right? It was all God, wasn't it, primarily? But now in the second playthrough, verses 16 to 27, which we're looking at today, guess what? It's going to focus, zoom in on the human aspect. It's going to look at the people of Israel and the role they played. And all the takeaway lessons from today are in that flashback. So remember last week I said it's really important to identify with the right characters in this. Well, last week we identified with the Gibeonites who needed rescuing. Well, this week, as we look at it again, I want us to identify with the armies of Israel, with the people of God. And when we do that, when we switch and put ourselves in the shoes of the people of God, following their leader Joshua... Well, new things jump out at us. Even the passage we looked at last week, just quickly, you'll notice new things if you, if you change from identifying with the Gibeonites to the Israelites. See, if we identify with the Israelites from last week's passage, we see that this scary alliance of five kings is scary. But you know what? There's an even more powerful, powerful alliance that we're a part of as Israel. See, God's people are allied with none other than the Lord, Yahweh. There's a divine human alliance Right, counteracting the, the 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 five kings alliance. Again, if we identify with Israel, just this is again last week's passage, just a bit of a recap. We'll notice that immediately after God reassures Joshua with his promises, uh, back in verse eight, that Israel had to immediately take quick action and follow Joshua into battle. And this wasn't a walk in the park, was it? In fact, verse nine we read that uh, it was after an all night march from their camp at Gilgal. Right? After an all-night march, God's people had their SAS moment. An all-night forced march in the dark would not have been fun, but they had to take action. And the point is this. God's sovereign hand, you see, did the opposite of making his people inactive. Right? God's sovereignty actually does the opposite. It energized them into action, even with last week's passage, but even more so as we look into this week's passage, verses 16 to 27. So here we are, remember it's a flashback, and we're going to pick up the story. It's not a complete flashback, not right to the beginning, but this is still after a few things have happened, after the all-night march, right? After the surprise attack we read about last week, after the sun and moon stopped, you remember that? After the hailstorms from heaven and, and hailstones from heaven that God sent, 
right? It's after all of this, but before Joshua and his army finish everything up and return to Gilgal. That's where we picked up. Right, so the victory was within their grasp when we pick up this flashback, this story. But there was unfinished business. Firstly, with the kings. Let's read again from verse 16. Now the five kings had fled and hidden in the cave and Makada. When Joshua was told that the five kings has been found hiding in the cave of Makada, he said, roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and post some men there to guard it. Now, remember I said, this replay and rewind, this flashback is going to emphasize what? The human element. Joshua and Israel's role in the victory won by God, it's going to emphasize that. So here, you see Joshua, well, he finds the kings hiding, right? They've tucked tail and they've started hiding because they're afraid, they're, they're losing. Now, what does Joshua do? He gets large rocks to seal up the hiding spot where they were hiding in the cave and he's going to deal with them later. Now, there's a bit of a play on words here. Earlier, last week's chapter, we remember, God had sent hailstones, or literally he had sent rocks from heaven. It's the same word in the original. Now, Joshua and his army, it's their turn to use rocks, right? Using the rocks to seal the fate of these kings. It's quite literally, seal their fate. All right, that's the kings. What about the army? Well, they uh, put the kings in the cave, seal them up so that the army of Israel can also finish what they started. Let's pick up from verse 19. Joshua then says to them, but don't stop. Pursue your enemies, attack them from the rear and don't let them reach their cities for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. All right, Joshua commands them, don't stop. Now, why? Well, because God has started something and he wants you to finish it. So you don't stop. God is 100% behind you so that you can finish. Now, here we've got another play on words, right? Last week we saw, what did God do to the sun and the moon? He made the sun and the moon stop, literally stand still in order that they can have this decisive victory. Now, Joshua says, don't you stand still, right? You don't stop. Same word, stand still. Don't do it. Don't stand still. You keep going. Play on words. Same kind of idea as what God did with the sun and the moon last week. But the point is, again, God's action doesn't lead to inaction, but it actually energizes into more action. And of course, the result we read earlier, the last few verses of this bit we read, verse 20, so Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely. But a few survivors managed to reach the fortified cities. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Makeda, and no one uttered a word against the Israelites. All right, so that's the kings settled, the army. But now we come back to the kings, the cave where they were shut up in their cave so that we can finish them off. So uh, verse 22, let's keep on picking up the story. Joshua then said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Now, it's a very strange custom that's going on here, but it's very, very important what Joshua gets the Israelite army, the men to do. See, there's an object lesson here that he wanted the people not just to see, I mean, he could have done it, right? But he wanted them to experience firsthand. They were to put their feet on the necks of these defeated kings. Now, why do this? Why do this? 
well, this is actually something that had a rich history in the Old Testament, a sign that has a rich history in the Old Testament. Um, In Genesis chapter 3, after sin enters the world, God curses Satan. And then he says that one day the offspring of Eve would crush the Satan's, crush the serpent's head with his foot. All right. And then Psalm 110, another place where God says his chosen one, his anointed, his Messiah would sit at his right hand until God makes his enemies a footstool for the Messiah's feet. And then Psalm 47, God's kingship over all the earth would be shown by subduing the nations under his people Israel and putting the nations under Israel's feet. Okay, you got that? When you put your feet over a defeated enemy, it's a very rich sign, image. It's a sign of complete victory. Now, why did Joshua want Israel's men to do this? See, he wanted them to know, hey, Israel, this is your victory. Yeah? What we did here in our alliance with Yahweh, with God the Lord, that's your alliance too. You're sharing in the victory, not just my victory as Joshua, the anointed leader, right? You share in the victory of the anointed one. You are the offspring of Eve, who will one day even crush Satan. You get it? And the reason they needed to know this, the reason this sign was so important is because, as I said, there is still more to do, unfinished business. So this sign is coming with a promise. Look at verse 25. Joshua said to them, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. Oh, gee, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is what the Lord will do. Notice this. To all the enemies you are going to fight. Right? This is the same promise God had spoke to Joshua in chapter 1 and earlier to Joshua in verse 8. But now it's spoken by Joshua, passed on to Israel. As if to drum in again and again that this is not just for Joshua. This is for you, people of God. And why? Because, as he says, there is still unfinished business ahead. Right? There are enemies that you will go on to fight. And you need this sign and this promise to energize you to do that. You see, there is a tension that's in the book of Joshua that actually goes on to the next book, the book of Judges, which we hope to look at next year. It's a great book, by the way. Was Joshua's conquest of the land finished or not? Was it finished or not? And here's the answer. And here's where the tension is. The answer is actually yes and no. Was it finished? Yes and no. Or yes, in part, because... Look at the end of this section. Um, Joshua chapter 10, by the way, is the second section. If you want a structure of Joshua, is the second section of four sections of the book. Um, after Joshua 10, we see the southern kings defeated. And if you're reading ahead, you might have done it in CGs. Joshua 11 um, then deals with the northern king. It's the same kind of deal. The northern kings um, also get in an alliance, but they're met with the greater power of Joshua and, and the armies of Israel. But the end of the second part of the book, um, in chapter 11, verse 23, we actually read this. So Joshua took the entire land, right? Just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. Okay, that makes it seem like it's pretty much done and dusted, right? Well, not quite. Because the next section immediately after, section 3 of Joshua 
Look how it begins, the, the, the second passage there on the overhead. When Joshua had grown old, the Lord said to him, You are now very old, and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. Right? You see the tension there? And then throughout the rest of the book of Joshua, it's actually pretty clear that there is still much more to be done. There are regions to be conquered, cities yet to be possessed, and inhabitants to be driven out. So that's the thing, right? What's the answer to the question? Did Joshua finish the conquest or no? Well, the answer is yes and no. It is a little bit like, and you'll be familiar with this if you've heard me speak on it before, lots of people use this illustration, the difference between D-Day and VE Day in World War II. Okay, D-Day, June 6, 1944, the Allies landed in the beaches of Normandy. Pretty much that was the beginning of the end for the Nazis. It was pretty much going to finish, all right? But D-Day, as significant as a victory as D-Day was, it wasn't until almost 11 months later on the 8th of May, 1945, that final victory in Europe was declared when they found Hitler committed suicide in his bunker, okay? There was an 11-month gap between D-Day and V-Day. And that's sort of like this situation here. There's a delay, God had secured D-Day victory for the people of Israel. That's what happened in Joshua. But they needed to finish the task like the Allies did back in World War II until VE Day. And because of that, the sign and the promise that God gives them here in Joshua 10 is so important. The sign and the promise is supposed to energize them into action so that they would finish this victory that God had won for them. Now, we won't read the rest of the chapter again. Read it earlier. It's pretty gruesome. End for the kings. Right? They're killed and then their bodies are hung on trees as a sign of a curse. But that's pretty much warfare in the ancient world. Now, I want to fast forward to us. All right? Remember, we're identifying with the Israelites. God gave them a sign of victory, the foot over, the feet over the enemy's heads. He gave them a promise to be with them right? for the future battles. Well, guess what? God has also given us a sign and a promise, but a much greater one. What's the sign of victory that he's given us? Well, it's actually the cross of Jesus. That in a dramatic twist, God is going to take the sign of being cursed, hung on a tree, kind of like it is what happened to the five kings, right? But he's going to take that sign of curse and he's going to turn it upside down. And Jesus hanging on a tree on a cross is going to be the sign of victory. Because as he hangs on the cross, he is the sin-bearing cursed one in our place. He does it on our behalf, but because he does it on our behalf, your sins, my sins, my guilt, your guilt, he does it instead of us. Because of that, God's victory is decisive over Satan. And we looked at that last week, right? And so the cross is actually a throne and the thorns on Jesus' head is actually a crown. Because this is where King Jesus defeated Satan. This is where right, the offspring of Eve crushed the head of Satan, even as Satan struck his heel. And of course, rising again from the dead three days later, he seals that victory over death. And then what's the promise? Right, The sign we've seen, the cross. Well, what's the promise that he speaks to his people? Well, it's in Matthew 28, verse 20. Surely I am with you. Always, to the very end of the age. That sounds a lot like Joshua, right? What a promise that is. Jesus says, I am with you. The risen Jesus will always be with you to the end of the age. But like Joshua, 
the sign, the cross, the promise I will be with you, they're given to God's people for a reason. What's the reason? It's so that we as God's people would have the courage to finish the task that God has given us to do. You got that? Right? It's exactly the same with Joshua and us or Israel and us. God gives us the victory and the promise, the sign, because we also have unfinished business, which is why Jesus' promise in Matthew 28 has a context, right? You guys know this passage it's called the Great Commission. Let's read it again. He says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, like Israel in Joshua, we are in that now and not yet situation between D-Day and V-Day. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he is king. God's kingship has been established. Jesus is the ruler over all things. That is right now. That has happened. But until Jesus returns, it's not finished. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 15. For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Yeah? See, what's Jesus doing right now between his first and his second coming in the future? What's he doing? He's sitting on his throne, but his kingship is expanding. What's he doing? More and more of his enemies are being placed under his feet. That is, more and more souls are coming under his rule. And how is Jesus' kingship, his rule, extending? How is that happening? Well, the second passage tells us, Ephesians 1. Read it there. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Okay, All things placed under Jesus' feet, you see it there, is for his church. The church is not a building, not a denomination. The church is us, people. Now, for his church doesn't just mean it's for our benefit. It is for our benefit. But actually, you see the second bit, it actually involves us. Because verse 23, we are his body. The church is his body. We are his fullness who fills everything in every way. In other words, as his body, we have a role to play. Because the body, we are the hands and the feet of Jesus, who is the head. And it's through us, his body, that his rule, his fullness, is going to be extended. Yeah? That's our role. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why didn't Jesus zap us all into heaven the moment we came to know him, the moment we were converted? Why does he just zap people into heaven since heaven is, you know, since eternity is already guaranteed? Why didn't he just zap us straight there? That's a really good question, isn't it? And it's a good question because so many Christians live as though there's really nothing really important in their Christian lives between conversion and heaven. Now just kind of muddle, muddle your way through between becoming a Christian and then going to see Jesus. And I wonder if that's how you feel about your Christian life. Well, the answer to the question, why didn't Jesus just zap us into heaven the moment we converted, is because, of, well, you know the answer, isn't it? It's because the work is unfinished. It's both his work in us to make us more like him. Um, the technical theological term is sanctification. You heard of that word? Sanctification, right? Growing in holiness and Christ-likeness. The work in us, sanctification is incomplete, unfinished. But it's also his work through us. 
through us to spread His love, His Lordship. It's the great commission to make disciples in us and through us. Both are unfinished. You see, there is so much to do, so much more to do. And just as a note, Israel never finished the task that Joshua set them to do. The remaining Canaanites in the land would cause them hundreds of years of strife, especially as we go into the book of Judges. And guess what? Our task as God's people today, that's not finished either. There is so much that we need to do and so much that we can do. And I hope that Mobilization Month has given you a taste and a glimpse of all the things just within SWEC that you can be involved in. And so let me ask you this. What is preventing you from doing everything you can with all the energy that God gives you to finish the task that God has given you? You know, this precious life that he's given us between our conversion and our death or Jesus' return the precious moments. What are we doing? What are you doing? Right? What's preventing you from doing everything you can, giving all you've got? You know, the Bible never lets God's sovereignty and his assurance of victory be a reason for our inaction or laziness or apathy. The opposite we've seen is true in Joshua 10. And I want to show you from the Apostle Paul's life, just how the opposite is true. Have a look at this. Paul, by the way, just a context, he's um, started his, his ministry in, um, in Corinth. And in Acts chapter 18, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent. Sounds a bit familiar again, doesn't it? For I'm with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Okay, what's God promising Paul? Again, it sounds a lot like Joshua, right? He says, I'm going to be with you. And in fact, God says he sovereignly guarantees right, that he has people in Corinth. He's already predestined people in Corinth to be saved. But that actually energized Paul into serving for 18 more months. See, some people object to the idea of predestination, that God has already chosen those to be saved. Because they think if God has already chosen people to be saved, evangelism, me doing anything is pointless. But you see here, predestination actually energizes evangelism and any proper understanding of predestination should do that as well. See, why are we at SWEC running alpha during lockdown? And why should you not give up praying for your friends and family and inviting them along to things like alpha? Why not give up? Because God is in the business of saving. And such is his sovereignty and his power that he can save even those you think are the most impossible to save. His sovereignty, the fact that he's in control of people's salvation and destiny, that is the reason we keep on evangelizing, sharing Jesus, sending people to the ends of the earth to share Jesus among the most unreached people groups in the world, right? His sovereignty energizes us to do more, not less. And as Joshua chapter 10 reminds us, right? God wants to partner with his people, See, our victory isn't done for us by Jesus and then we do nothing. Because remember Ephesians 1, we are the body of Jesus. We are his hands and feet, the church. God wants to partner with us so that we can finish the task. Now, that's true of evangelism and mission, the Great Commission, sharing Jesus. But remember, it's also true of sanctification, God's work in us. Now, here's a really important point I need to make. There's another common misunderstanding See, there is a difference between salvation and sanctification. 
right? Don't miss this difference. It's very important. A lot of Christians don't see this difference. Salvation is actually all God. Um, the technical word is it's monogistic, monogistic, right? Mono, one, ergo, work. It's God's work alone, right? We know that salvation is God alone, by grace alone, right? Through Jesus alone. We don't add anything to it. It's monogistic. By the way, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you can be saved today. Not because you're good, not because you're religious, right? But because God wants to save you. He's going to do all of that for you. So will you turn to him today? Sanctification, however, is different. Growing in holiness, becoming more like Jesus. Guess what? That's not monogistic. That's synergistic, right? Sin, sin, means together in Greek, ergo, work, right? We work together with God. Synergism. You see, there is a reason why God says in Hebrews 12 that we are to make every effort to be holy because holiness, sanctification, like evangelism, takes effort. Do you know that? It takes effort. We've got to partner with God on that. So please ask yourself the question if you're a follower of Jesus. Honestly, have you stalled in your Christian life? Have you kind of slowly ground to a halt or slowed down? And if you have, could the reason possibly be because you've stopped making every effort? You see, here it is, Christians. You can't just cruise in the Christian life without putting the hard work of fighting and killing sin, resisting temptation, without putting the hard work of cultivating spiritual disciplines, right, habits of, of worship, of Bible, of prayer, without putting in the hard work of pursuing joy, ultimate joys, not temporary joys, of practicing generosity, of prioritizing the things of God. And, and right now it's prioritizing meeting with God's people physically if you can, right? Without putting in the hard work of taming our tongues, biting our tongues, not saying the things that hurt others. The hard work of sacrificing to serve, because serving, as we've seen in Mobilization Month, it takes sacrifice. Without the hard work of choosing to ignore other people's sin against us, to forgive when it's hard. Like with, without every effort in these and other areas, there will be no growth, all right? It's not let go and let God and God does everything. We do nothing. No, no, no. It's synergism, right? Without the hard work, there will be no deepening in your walk with the Lord. There will be no holiness. There will be no increase ultimately in your joy and in your peace. I wonder, friends, if lockdown has made you unmotivated and passive. Probably for most of us, the answer is yes, absolutely yes. Well, if that's the case, this is a word for you, isn't it? Is God speaking to you right now? Because the God of Joshua is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has guaranteed the victory. He promises to be with us through this whole thing. But that doesn't make us passive. It's meant to spur us into action because the task is unfinished, both the task in us and the task through us. So our perfect Joshua, the Lord Jesus, says to us, don't stop now. I am with you. So don't stop now. Let me end with this passage. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Right? Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, help us through your promise and assurance to be motivated and spurred on to more, energized to more in our lives of holiness, outwards to reach others in evangelism. Give us the strength we need. Give us your promises. Give us your presence so that we might do this for your glory. Amen. Now, um, this will be a good time, especially because some of you are gathered in small groups to particularly chat with each other with this response question. Now, you might want to think back to a time of real personal growth to, uh, for you as a Christian. If it's now, great. If this is the time you've grown the most, great. All right. But for many of us, it's maybe sometime in the past. Or so what is something that you did then that you would like to re-engage in now and make every effort now to re-engage in? Have a chat about that. Pray for each other. Thank you so much. See ya.